Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, listener mail. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're here. It's Monday. It's not Monday for us, but it's Monday for you, and it's time to read some of the messages that you have sent into the show over the past few weeks. So if you're ready to jump right in, Rob, I could read this message from Amy on our episodes on brain and head theft. Well, let's have it. Okay, this comes from Amy. She says, Hi all, I just finished the second episode on brain and head theft today and thought I'd drop you a note. When the episode started, I immediately thought of the strange afterlife of Albert Einstein's brain. The pathologist who performed the autopsy on Einstein took Einstein's brain without permission and kept it for decades, and then she attaches a BBC article for us to look at. Yeah, we made a brief reference to this in the episodes, but uh, Mm -hmm. didn't go deep on this one because I figured this story was better known than many of the other ones we talked talked about like Haydn and Ishii and uh, and all those. And so uh, so I wanted to focus on the lesser known ones. Also, I remembered when I was actually looking into the story about Einstein's brain, I encountered some like just discrepancies in the accounts. Uh, I don't remember all the details now, but I think there were like conflicting accounts of like whether or not there was permission or what form that permission took and so forth. Yeah, the article they sent is The Strange Afterlife of Einstein's Brain by William Kremer for uh, BBC. So, uh, yeah, if you want to look that up, that's where you'll find it. Amy continues, The second thought I wanted to share concerns how Ishii's brain was eventually returned to his tribal descendants. I was an anthropology major focusing on physical anthropology in the early 2000s, and the Native American Graves and Repatriation Act, or NAGPRA, was important to learn about in light of how human remains and other artifacts were collected. The return of Ishii's brain was likely NAGPRA-related. Finally, my research for my master's thesis in forensic anthropology involved looking at head trauma in people buried in a London church crypt versus former British sailors buried at a naval retirement home. No surprise, sailors were more likely to have head trauma than the average British population. Both groups thought they were being buried in their final resting place before being uncovered during church renovations and archaeological excavations at the sailor's home and didn't expect to be used for research 100 plus years on. Thanks for all the fun hours of listening enjoyment, Amy. Oh, well, that's neat. We may have to look that up. I love a good uh, study involving uh, 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 historical head trauma. I remember there's a really good one about gladiator um, head uh, trauma that we, uh, we looked at a while back. Was that for an invention episode or for? I think it's maybe come up a couple of times, uh, but probably uh-huh. for invention. Yeah, at one point when we were talking about helmets, it came up. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Thanks, Amy. All right. We also heard from folks about uh, halos and mirages. That was kind of a, I guess, like a three episode uh, spread of content that we did. This one comes from Robin. They say, hi, Rob and Joe and Seth. Listening to your latest email roundup, I thought I would just send you a real-life example of sun dogs encountered in the wild. Quite a common sight in the winter here in Edmonton, Alberta. Notice these while waiting at the bus stop. You can see two sun dogs to either side, which are continuous with a faint rainbow slash halo around the sun, the topmost part of which is a little brighter. And then, new to me that day, there was also a little segment of a reversely arched rainbow further up, almost directly above the sky. If you look closely, you can also see what looks like glitter saturating the sky, small ice crystals sparkling. Cheers, Robin. 
Yeah, this was really interesting. So Robin attached a video file for us to look at. And so you, you see the sun dog and the sun dog, of course, has the sun in the middle. And then it's sort of a ring around the sun with uh, with sort of flaring second sun nodes at uh, what look like the 90 degree vertices around around that ring. And then if you pan the camera up, which Robin does from the uh, from that initial ring, there is another inverted arch above. So like, I guess if you were to shift along like the Z axis, 90 degrees up from that roughly, it's like there's another circle and you can see it reflected, uh, but but in the mirror image, uh, which was really cool. And this also reminds me of an experience I just had a few days ago when I was using the hose in the yard. Uh, and I, I had that experience of making a rainbow around your own shadow with the spray of the hose. You ever, you ever notice this, Rob? Hmm. Yeah, this rings a bell now that you mention it. This is an, another interesting optical uh, phenomenon here that has to do with the refraction and reflection of sunlight through uh, different types of like droplets or, or crystals in the atmosphere. In this case, it's a uh, mist of water droplets in the atmosphere. You can make a rainbow around your own shadow because uh, uh, because if you're standing out, you know, in the yard in the bright sun, uh, the the rainbow is always going to form around your anti-solar point. So, uh, so like if you imagine a, a line going from the sun through your head, then down to your shadow's head, that's sort of like the, the line that will form the middle of the ring of that you're going to see a rainbow forming around. Hmm. So if you uh, if you squirt a bunch of water up in the air around that point, sort of around the, your shadow's head, you'll probably be able to see a rainbow in the bright sunlight. And it's the same principle that causes a rainbow to form from your point of view in a you know in a storm that's going on in the atmosphere in a distance. Uh, and this is an interesting reminder of why you can never actually get to the end of a rainbow. Because a rainbow is not a thing that has a fixed physical location. Uh, like plenty of other optical phenomena in the sky, a rainbow's apparent location is actually determined by the sort of convergence of several different things. It's the location of the sun, which shines the light, and then the location of a bunch of water droplets somewhere in the atmosphere. Uh, and these water droplets are what bend and reflect the light back toward us. And then your eyes, which perceive the frequencies of light broken apart into their individual uh, colors when they refract through those water droplets and then come back and hit your eyes. So you could roughly say that the rainbow is from your perspective, wherever that water that's doing the reflecting and refracting is. But if you were to approach it, the rainbow would no longer be there because it's a product of your point of view, your perspective when you're looking at that water. So it wouldn't be there anymore when you got there. It's the natural place for leprechauns to send you, though, in search of their gold, because they're right. inherent tricksters, and they they, they love uh, uh, they, they love sending humans, sending mortals on uh, on fruitless errands in pursuit of their greed. But educating you about the behavior of light in the process. <laughs> yeah, they're really into optics. All right, this next message comes to us from Diana. This is about the Moses Illusion. Diana writes, Hi, Joe and Robert. I'm listening to your episode on the Moses Illusion, and it made me remember this sort of dumb prank one of my older cousins would play on me when we were little. Uh, mind you that this played out in Spanish. We're from Peru, but it went, What color was the white horse of Simón Bolívar? Uh, I'll try to do the Spanish. De qué color era el caballo blanco de Simón Bolívar? 
And uh, about Simone Bolivar, uh, Diana writes, he was known as the liberator as he led armies and revolutions against Spain for the independence of several countries, including Venezuela, Colombia, and Peru. So he is a well-known historical figure in South America. And when I would say I didn't know, she'd laugh about how she gave the answer in the sentence. Uh, she'd pulled the same prank on several members of our family, and no one ever caught on. I wonder if that could be classified as the same effect or something similar to the Moses illusion. Perhaps it works better in Spanish since it's noun plus adjective, unlike English where it's adjective plus noun. Your mind goes to the horse first, and its color goes right over your head. That's interesting. I was just thinking about that, looking uh, since I have them both here in front of me on the, the listener mail. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. we, we get to the, the color first in English, but it's secondary in the Spanish. Right. To repeat again, in English, it's what color was the white horse, but in Spanish, it's what color was the caballo blanco. Yeah. Anyway, Diana says, just my two cents to add to the weirdness of human language and understanding. Love the show and my mind is constantly being blown. So thank you. Best, Diana. Uh, yeah, thanks for this message, Diana. This is really interesting. I, I'm not sure whether this would technically constitute a form of knowledge neglect, like we were talking about, like the Moses illusion is one example of knowledge neglect, uh, because I guess the question would be whether the problem people have with noticing the 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 color being given away in the sentence uh, is like where that error arises. Is it that the the color is heard and processed and then subsequently ignored? Or is it whether people are somehow prone to hear the question without ever processing the color in the first place? Like, does it just not even enter your mind? Hmm, Yeah. Um, And then I wonder, I, I can't help but also wonder on this one, if you were, if you're more f- familiar with the with the figure, the historical figure of of Simon Bolivar, you would you might be more inclined to stumble in this one, you know, because uh, I think we we t- touched on this in the episode before. Like uh, some of these that, that involve a historic person, you end up immediately like doing like a flash presentation in your mind of <laughs> of all the history, uh, you know, all the sort of trivia facts you know about them, and sometimes I feel like that can derail us from. Uh, from something like this, but even the punchline of a joke, like uh, one we we mentioned on a recent episode, the whole uh, where did General Washington keep his armies? Yeah, I mean, there's no reason you should anticipate that the answer is in his sleeves, right. but uh, but you still you're you're automatically going to uh, going to like facts stored in your knowledge bank, yeah. and thus it. I think that is one of the reasons that it's especially funny if it is funny to you when the answer is just a silly like way of pronouncing a word. Yeah, <laughs> the joke is actually that you have been thinking about answering this question on completely the wrong level, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, and also, I mean, with 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 questions like this, I mean, yeah, it's not a question that is 100 percent in good faith because it because right. the answer is hidden in the question. Um, and you're, you're and if you interpret it as being in good faith, you you just assume that the answer is not blatantly present in the question. Yeah. Uh, so whether or not this is technically a form of knowledge neglect, I do think it's still really interesting. It does tie into that general experience that happens every day and seems totally mundane. But when you think about it, it's actually pretty strange, uh, like we talked about in the episode, that you are able to get the gist of sentences correctly without really retaining all of the information in the sentence. Like, How do we do that? How do our brains manage so quickly to extract and retain the global meaning of a statement or of a question, but not notice major information contained inside it? (laughs) 
All right. Here's another one. This one comes to us from Charlie. Charlie writes, hello, science boys, and they spell boys, B-O-I-S, um, which I think ultimately that works better um, in print than it does out loud. Um, but uh, anyway, that's what they write. Uh, then they continue. Short time listener, first time emailer. I have listened to the whole archive, and don't worry, it only took me a couple of years. I like to speed up my podcasts. Y'all are the only podcast I got up to um, uh, three times speed on. And you had over a thousand episodes. No human way to listen to them all normally. I finally weaned you down to 1.8 times speed since I got caught up. This raises a number of questions uh, for me. So, so first of all, I mean, I always kind of cringe a little when when someone tells me they've listened to all the episodes. Like they went back to the beginning, um, you know, just because that's that's from a, that's a white ways back. Um, and and when we started this thing out, we had no idea what we were doing. So so, I mean, I would generally advise people to start from the present and 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 work uh and and you know maybe work back a little bit that sort of thing but you know to to each your own you know you don't have to listen to the album in the uh order that the artist gives it you can put it on shuffle uh who are, who are we to argue with that but then on the speed point uh um i i mean i admire anyone who can listen to a podcast at at three times its normal speed i feel like when I'm if I QA an episode of our show before it goes out, I'll bump it up to 1.5, and that's about my limit. If I do if I go much higher than that, then when I'm done, I feel like I'm I'm kind of having a slight nervous breakdown. Like it's kind of um, uh, my, like my mind speeds up to it, and then I mm-hmm. can't take it anymore. Like I get out of it, and there's kind of like this whiplash of reality. Oh, I sometimes listen to podcasts and audiobooks at an accelerated speed. And the problem is actually that after I have done that, now regular talking speed is intolerable to me. Like, mm-hmm. if so, I do that and then I hear myself talk at a normal speed or someone else talk at a normal speed, and it sounds like everything's happening in slow motion. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I definitely prefer to listen to us at. Uh, 1.5 speed because mm-hmm. it sounds just a little different. You know, my own voice especially sounds just a little bit different. So I can almost appreciate, say, a, an episode of Weird House Cinema as if it were not me uh, in a weird way. But yeah. yeah, if I go too far up, it, it feels like a nightmare voice. I don't know. And, and then it, it starts unsettling me. Yeah, folks out there, if you if you never tried it, it is hard to listen to yourself. We have to listen to ourselves constantly to preview these episodes before they go out. And man, that that's just consistently a tall order. <laughs> All right. Well, they continue with the, the email. Anyway, I was listening to your episode on the Moses illusion, and I realized that I had an experience that seemed related. Apologies if you end up discussing it later in the episode. I am sending this part of the way through. It was the end of my eighth grade year, and my science teacher had us doing Jeopardy-esque game with uh, buzzers and everything. I remember very little about that day, only that I knew the answer to a question. Who was the first person to receive a lobotomy? Now, this is something that happens to me frequently, where I will think one thing and then say something different or related. So while my brain told me that the answer was Phineas Gage, my mouth shouted, Nicholas Cage, in response. Um... (laughs) I mean, I could see Cage as Gage in a in a biopic. Oh yeah. Uh, anyway, they continue. Cue thirteen year old me's intense embarrassment to the point that I could not even correct myself. My team obviously did not win those points. I most frequently experience this phenomenon with numbers. 
where I will be writing a number and do it correctly, but when I have to say them out loud, they frequently are in the wrong order. I used to work a job that required me to read credit card numbers back to people over the phone and somehow never was able to train my brain to do it consistently. Anyway, I just thought you might find this interesting. Love the show. Weird House Cinema has brought me so much joy, and I can't wait to watch Santo in The Treasure of Dracula. Thanks, Charlie. Oh, thanks, Charlie. Yeah, that is a great example. Uh, I guess that that's somewhat different than the Moses illusion, but I guess that would constitute a form of knowledge neglect. Like your outward behavior is not, for some reason, able to perform the thing that you do know is stored in your memory correctly. Obviously, one of the factors here seems to be a uh, sort of the pressure added by a public performance. I actually remember very vividly an experience I had kind of like this where, uh, Rob, did you ever do a a public spelling bee at school where, you know, you're in front of everybody (laughs) and you're trying to spell words? And Uh, Lord, no, no, I never did uh, that. Yeah, I, I did this one time in middle school. And I remember I spelled a word wrong, even though I was like 100% positive that I knew how to spell it right. And the way it went was my word, I was up at the microphone and I had to spell waltz. Mm -hmm. And I said, waltz, W-A-L-T-Z. And then they they were about to say like, that is correct. And then I went E. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know why. I have no idea. I did not think there was an E at the, the end of the word, but I was just compelled. E, the E, E. <laughs> Obviously, there's something about being in front of an audience and having that kind of pressure that suddenly that makes you just act out in strange ways sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> Waltzy. Waltzay. All right, so this next message comes to us from Ryan. This is also about Moses Illusion. Ryan says, Hi, Robert and Joe. I am a longtime listener writing in for the first time. Thank you for all the intelligent and well-researched discussion on topics that I would otherwise never encounter. Uh, The way you discuss and draw connections into religion, philosophy, psychology, and weird movies is unique and wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Ryan. Ryan says, I am a middle school band director, or at least I will be when we are allowed to play instruments in a room together again. Last week, I was listening to the Moses Illusion episode, and I began to see some connections to learning and memory as they relate to music education, specifically to practice habits. During the episode, you mentioned the idea that hearing incorrect information can cloud the memory of information that we know to be correct. This instantly brought to mind the way that I teach students to practice music. I strongly encourage students to break down a difficult passage as they practice so that they are always playing it correctly. This can mean putting your instrument down and clapping a rhythm you are having trouble with, or playing a passage one note at a time, or simply slowing it down. The idea here is to make the music more simple so that they are less likely to make a mistake. This would mean that every time they hear it and play it, it is correct. Contrast this with a student who simply tries to play the passage straight away, and maybe they do this correctly six out of ten times. That means they now have four incorrect versions of the passage in their mind. Now, there are some differences between the linguistic and musical examples, but I think the core idea of information interference applies. 
When the first student goes to perform the piece, there is only one version of it, the correct version, in their mind. The second student, on the other hand, has a handful of different versions of it in their mind, and this student must now actively choose the correct one. This is significantly more mental effort, which happens to be something in short supply when we are nervous on stage. Here's stage performance again. I never thought of this concept in such an explicit and direct way, but once you put a name to it, the idea was already there in my mind. Learning like this is what helps make me a better teacher. I look forward to going on more weird journeys and learning more with both of you in the future. Thank you, Ryan. That's great, and I uh, I certainly admire anybody who can who can you know not only um, uh, maintain their sanity but excel. As a as a as a junior high band director, I I remember even as a junior high kid, and that's usually kind of an oblivious state to be in. I remember you know looking at my director and been thinking, man, this this guy really puts up with a lot. I was an awful rambunctious band kid in middle school. <laughs> we we essentially turned our middle school band class into the WWE. Back then, it was the WWF, and it was the Attitude Era. So everybody wanted to be Stone Cold or the Undertaker or whatever, and it was a it was a free for all. Oh man, that's got got to be rough on the tubas. There's another point that comes up here that is something that I have thought for years and uh, has come up in the context of uh, all kinds of skills like writing and stuff. Uh, you know, there is I think often a an attitude among many people that, you know, practice is always good. Practice makes perfect. And, you know, you want to get any good at any skill, you do have to practice it. But I do think it is entirely possible to practice yourself worse at things. Practice is not always good. You need to be practicing in the right kinds of way because sometimes practice, if it, you know, if you are practicing counterproductive habits, they can really take over and sort of prevent your growth in a skill in the future. All right, here's another one. This one comes to us from Scott. Hey, guys, love the show slash shows. Thank you. In the Moses Illusion episode, you touched on the idea of how we know stuff, but can't relate details on how the thing actually works. This reminded me of a story I read long ago. In it, a NATO soldier stationed in Iceland is mysteriously transported back in time to the Viking era. He struggles to adapt because while he has great knowledge of wonderful things from the future, he cannot explain how to produce them with the, with the existing level of technology. Worse, he is woefully lacking in the basic knowledge of how to survive without them. He cannot hunt, farm, make fire, build shelter, or the myriad of other skills that even the youngest members of the clan would do. A poignant line is that, quote, you don't have the tools to make the tools to make the machinery to make the things I can use. (laughs) He eventually perishes because while he is smart and accomplished in his own time, he lacks the resources modern civilization has come uh, to depend upon. Standard closing. Thanks. Keep up the good work, etc. Scott. Thanks, Scott. Uh, Yeah, I looked up the details here since you didn't have the name and author. I think the story you're talking about is called The Man Who Came Early by Paul Anderson. Uh, I'm not familiar with this writer, but uh, just a a quick Googling does make it look like one of the themes that's visited in some of his science fiction and fantasy writing is that of uh, people in, in modern technologically advanced societies really underestimating so-called primitive people who have less access to technology and overestimating how clever and powerful they are just by virtue of existing in a society with more access to technology. 
And uh, I think that's a very good point. I mean, one way of looking at technology is that it it can greatly increase the output of human labor, but it does that by requiring us to have fewer and fewer general skills and to go deeper and deeper on like highly specialized skills that are increasingly alienated from the raw materials and processes of production that, that make life possible. Yeah, isn't it funny that oftentimes in our, especially our post-apocalyptic science fiction, you have you have these cases where we present some sort of post-high-tech civilization, primitive society, worshiping a piece of uh, like some relic of the technological age, be it a you know an atomic bomb or you know or I don't know some derelict computer or something, uh, but really this has more in common with the way we interact with examples of advanced technology you know like we are the ones who know has have no idea how they work and for us it is just magic it is just a gift of the gods uh and granted it would be that way for our um (laughs) post-apocalyptic uh descendants as well but uh you know it's it's not like we're not already there yeah uh but i think this really narrow-minded way of looking at things uh this sort of like implicit superiority complex among people in tech technologically advanced societies is absolutely there and is absolutely not justified. I mean, people who did more with less technology had like had to have way more skills. It's mind-boggling how much uh, like intelligence and skill it is necessary to just like build a house without power tools and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, uh, there's one example of just uh, like uh, of sort of forgotten technological uh, advancement. Uh, that I, I've come back to it time and time again, but I don't remember exactly who wrote it. Maybe it was George Garrett in one of his Elizabethan novels, but it was talking about um, like sailing ships of old and about how not, not only could everybody on the ship tie every knot that was necessary for the rigging, but they could do so in the dark in the middle of a storm, um, which uh, I don't know. I was always found that rather uh, a rather interesting commentary on like on the, on the the level of, um, of of personal knowledge that was required to uh, to keep a ship running at that time. Yeah. So am I really a genius because I can write some JavaScript? I'm not yeah. sure. <laughs> Try tying three different knots. Let's see how that goes. Much less a whole page worth of them. Okay, now we got some messages having to do with our episodes on spoons. This first one comes from Randy. Randy says, hello, Robert and Joe. I just finished listening to your spoon episodes and I found them both fantastic. I love hearing how mundane objects in our lives have such interesting histories and stories behind them. Uh, you've done a great job of researching these mini mouth shovels. One thing that I don't recall being mentioned was spoons and forks too being used as a control to prevent left handedness. My father told me that when he was a kid, He was forced to use a spoon with a bend at the neck, so the bowl, uh, I guess that meaning the bowl of the spoon, pointed to the left, thus making the spoon only usable with the right hand and forcing out any tendencies for using one's left hand. Since using utensils is such a social norm that we expect children to learn in certain societies, uh, having them work to force preferred eating behaviors could absolutely be seen as a tool for control. The alternative would be to eat with the wrong hand and be seen as a heathen. Can you imagine? As an adult, my father uses his right hand for his work and daily tasks, but I can't help but wonder if there is another dimension where my father is left-handed. Thanks for the great show, Randy. 
Rob, have we ever done an episode on on this kind of thing, like the demonization of left-handedness? Because I remember hearing about this from adults when I was a kid, that like if they, they were coming up in schools where they were essentially taught that being left-handed was evil and you, you had to be like worked out of you. You know, I don't remember exactly. I, I feel like I did something on left-handedness, maybe with um, uh, with Allison Loudermilk, uh, the uh, original uh, co-host on the show back in the day. I think we did something on left-handedness, um, but uh, it's one of those things I'd love to go back to because I'm sure there's more there's more literature uh, on the topic now. Uh, it, it would, uh, yeah, it's worth another dive. Uh, and I'm not sure we really got into the uh, the evilness of it so much as the um, the way that left-handed people sometimes uh, uh, excel in a right-handed world, especially when you're looking at things like uh, sword fights, you know, violent conflict, but also sports. Oh, I see. Man, we would get so much lefty mail. <laughs> Left, well, yeah, lefties would love it, and 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 righties maybe not so much. I don't know. <laughs> but the the lefties are the ones you want on, on your side because they're the ones who are good in a knife fight. All right, we have one left. Uh, it's not a weird house uh, response. Usually we do the weird house uh, stuff at the end. Um, this one does relate to a movie episode that was, uh, you know, in many respects, kind of a kind of a weird proto weird house episode. It has to do with the Sarlacc. Um, this one comes to us from Eric. Hi, Robin, Joe, and producer Seth. I was listening to your recent listener mail episode. So this is a listener mail about listener mail. Anyway, when you read the listeners' comments about the Sarlacc digesting people for a thousand years, it occurred to me that the only person I can recall who died of old age in the Star Wars films was Yoda, who was 900 years old. Mm. Everyone else who died was killed, as far as I can recall. What if Yoda was not abnormal for his longevity? Maybe everyone lives for the better part of a millennium, or would if they weren't always at war. Just a random idea, but I don't think it's too incongruous with anything in the films, although I can't speak for the whole expanded universe. <laughs> keep up the great stuff, or keep the great stuff coming, Eric. Uh, this, is a, this is a great question. It's making me think back on the various deaths in the Star Wars films. Um, I, of non-combat-related deaths, the, the only two that are really coming to mind are, yeah, Yoda dying of old age, uh, Padme dying uh, due to uh, complications with childbirth. Uh, trying to think if there are any others. I think the Rancor's handler died of a broken heart, but that would have been like off screen, probably in a oh. short story. Oh, that, that part is always sad. Yeah. That's the worst part of Return of the Jedi for me is when the Rancor's handler starts crying. And I'm just like, oh, no, Luke is the villain. Yeah. Plus, I had that action figure of the, the Rancor handler. Yeah. Uh, so it kind of made it sadder because, like, I had him. Like, I had his uh, physical manifestation and the Rancor. Uh, yeah. It was, it, was, it was sad to think about. No. Um, well, well, but so this is very interesting. Uh, now, of course, you could look at this as it is a product of just sort of the storytelling conventions of adventure fiction, right? That, uh, you know, in the same way that people in star Wars don't stop to go to the bathroom, they also don't die of old age because it's just not dramatic. But the other thing I was thinking about was how, well, this would actually be, if this were true that in the star Wars uh, galaxy, you know, people just don't die of old age. They only die violent deaths. Isn't that explicitly true of the elves in in Tolkien? Like that they don't die of basically they live forever unless they're killed in battle. 
Uh, maybe. I don't remember specifically. I, you get into that whole business of them sailing off to the other land and all. Mm-hmm. Um, if they, they live long enough and they grow bored enough. Uh, and, you know, based on what, given what they're based on, you know, the ideas of fairy folk and, and all, it, it, that would make sense. Yeah. Um, I don't know. With Star Wars, though, I, you know, you could certainly point to the, the high degree of medical technology that is, and cybernetics that is, that is possible in this world. Uh, but on the other hand, there's great inequality in the Star Wars universe. So, right. you know, everybody's not benefiting from that technology. So that alone cannot account for um, for extended lifespans. Not everybody gets to become more machine now than man. Right. The, the bank, the bat, what is it? The back to tank? Uh, I believe uh, like it only seats one. You can only have one diaper clad Jedi in there at a time. Um, uh, regrowing their their um, their skin, uh, so uh, yeah, it's an interesting thought ex- experience. Though I'll have to uh, I'll have to ask ask my son about it. He he ultimately knows more about Star Wars at this point than I do. He's always correcting me on uh, the specific names of uh, individual vehicles and whatnot. Okay, here's one I bet you have the answer to because you're in that headspace now. Uh, what's the deal with like forcey people who, when they die in Star Wars, they just completely disappear, like they just vaporize? It happens to Obi Wan. It happens to Yoda. Don't when Yoda dies of old age, he just like he, it's just blanket there now, no Yoda yeah, at all. There's some sort of trick about becoming a Force ghost, and I don't remember all the the details about it, but it comes up in the Clone Wars series. Um, that it uh, yeah it's it's like a, an ability you take on i think okay so that disappearing is not something that happens to you but something you do like if you you die you can develop a skill maybe if you've practiced and honed it over time to disappear upon death and become a ghost i think it's like this is 50 percent um what i've absorbed through canon and this is also 50 percent me just spitballing but i think it's like if you were able to die with the serenity like sort of thinking about um you know, uh, you know t- Tibetan Buddhism and all the idea of of putting yourself in a headspace to to navigate that pathway between our life and the next. Mm-hmm. Like if you're able to to uh, to do that correctly, if your trajectory is sound, then yeah, you can you can live on as this force ghost uh, in, in the next life. But you've got to you kind of have to get into the into the right frame of mind. You know, you have to sort of enter that moment of calm like Obi-Wan does before he dies, that sort of thing. Oh, yeah, I just remembered in the, the middle one of the new trilogy, Luke also, he just disappears, just to the winds. Yeah, yeah, and I believe he has, like, a meditative state before that. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I like that that motif. I like that idea um, that, you know, if you're, if, uh, it, it, like I say, it, like a lot in Star Wars, it kind of uh, squares up well with, uh, with at least some uh, models of, of Eastern religion and philosophy. I think that's a wise and serene place to end today, if you're ready. Yeah. Let us Let's depart. Let's do it. <laughs> this plane of existence. Yeah, but we'll be back, though, uh, in, in, in Force Ghost form to watch over you. Uh, we'll be back next Monday, in fact, with more listener mail. So in the meantime, write in with more listener mail. Respond to listener mails. Respond to responses to listener mail. Respond to new episodes, old episodes, Weird House Cinema, Artifact episodes. You name it. Let us know what you're digging, what you're not digging. We're always open to um, criticisms, corrections, uh, and just in general, just added information about the topics we cover. Uh, you know, that's always the most delightful thing when uh, 
when 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 the listeners share things from their own life and their own experience. Uh, even my mom uh, got in on this after we did the spoon episode. Uh, I spoon episodes. I knew she was going to dig these because she's really into utensils. So mm-hmm. I, I was receiving a number of different uh, photos from uh, from various spoons in her collection. So um, so yeah, you you listeners, you can send in your spoon pictures as well. In the meantime, if you want to listen to other episodes, just find Stuff to Blow Your Mind in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind feed wherever you get your podcasts. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows.